0: Morning, everybody. Good morning. Uh, Firstly, thank you for the gentle ripple of applause. As a cricket fan, that made me feel very much at home. That is about as as rowdy as it gets, so thank you. Um, So, uh, good. We're continuing, as Rachel said, we're continuing our series on Haggai. We're sort of moving through the Bible's greatest hits, the big hitters, the ones that everybody knows. So, we've done Ezra, now we're moving into Haggai. Um, And just as a quick reminder, uh, Haggai is a book, um, it's made up of four messages that the prophet um, Haggai gave to the Israelites over about a four-month period um, as they were building, rebuilding the temple. So that might sound familiar, that's because that's the project that um, we looked at in the summer series on Ezra as well. So it's parallel times, same project, they're um, back, um, back to Jerusalem, they're back rebuilding the temple. Um, And Last week we looked at the first of those four messages, Uh, today we're looking at the second one. Um, Last week, really the Israelites were given a bit of a kick up the backside. Um, It was a message that was to a group of people who were probably a bit comfortable and a bit complacent. Uh, Things were going fairly well. Um, I think the phrase that Luke used last week was that they'd settled. Life wasn't perfect, but they got some nice houses, life was fairly comfortable, they were okay. And they'd learned to be okay with their lot. Um, now that sense of complacency and comfort and being okay with how things are um, is definitely a trap that we can fall into. Um, so they built houses, uh, they built nice houses for themselves, but God had rebuked them for building nice houses for themselves but not rebuilding his temple. Um, But perhaps surprisingly, they would got this rebuke. And and if you've read any of the Old Testament, you might be surprised by this. But actually, what the Israelites did is they actually listened and they actually obeyed first time. Um, And so they start rebuilding the temple. Um, Or they start with that project. But so today's message actually has got a bit of a different theme to it. Last week was a bit of a kick up the backside. Today's message is about a month and a half later... Um, but actually, it's more one of encouragement and want to keep going. Because a month or so later, they would—they decided they were going to rebuild this temple. But a month or so later, they'd already started to lose hope. They'd already started to feel discouraged. Um, so rather than it being a telling off, it's a message that is encouragement and to keep going. Um, again, I think that's a trap that we can fall into. We can fall into the trap of last week of feeling complacent and comfortable. But we can also fall into the trap of feeling um, discouraged and a lack of hope taking over and actually us taking a bit of a backward step and just being a bit passive because we don't feel there's much point. Um, so I think there's lots of lots of parallels in this passage um, to, to our own situations. So we're going to start by reading the passage um, and then we'll get into what it's got to say to us. So Haggai chapter 2, um, and I'll, I'm reading from the NIV. So on the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through, through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people. Ask them, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? But now be strong, Zerubbabel. Declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Jozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work. For I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. This is what the Lord Almighty says In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations. And what is desired by all nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. So our passage starts by looking backwards. Today we're going to kind of look backwards, we're going to look in the present and then we're going to look forward. But the passage starts by looking backwards and it gives us a bit of a hint, a bit of an indication as to why the Israelites might be feeling discouraged. Verse 1 um, gives us that first idea. They were in about a month into their building project, but actually a month in they probably had very little to show for it. The 21st day of the seventh month uh, was the last day of the Feast of the Tabernacles, a time when they would normally celebrate the harvest. But, as we know from the first chapter, their harvest wouldn't be, that wasn't that great. There wasn't actually that much to celebrate. Um, and also, the seventh month would have been a time where little to no work would have been allowed to take place as the festivals were taking place. So the chances are they were a month into this project and there was little progress to show for, the, for what they were doing because they weren't allowed to do any building work and they were in the middle of a harvest festival where they were celebrating a harvest that their previous disobedience meant wasn't that big. So probably they weren't in the best place. Um, And then the Israelites, if they look back a little bit further, they see even more discouragement. It also seems clear that they're discouraged by what they're building as well. The, when they look back at the old temple, when they look back at the previous temple built by Solomon, um, they look at that and they think, what they, what we used to build, what we'd built before, was much, much better than what we're going to manage here. Cyrus um, had been really generous, and we read that in Ezra, we read how Cyrus had been really generous in supporting the Israelites to rebuild their temple. But even with that support, it was clear to the Israelites that what they were building now wasn't going to look as good and wasn't going to be as impressive as the old temple. Haggai says in verse 3, he says as much, he says, does this not seem like nothing to you? Some of the Israelites that that he was addressing would have actually seen the original temple themselves. So they knew there was no hiding from the fact that outwardly, as they looked at this new temple that they were building, it was going to look less impressive, less spectacular than what they built before. So, was it worth bothering with? Was it worth building um, if it wasn't going to look as good as the old one used to? Was it going to be worth the effort? Now, we can be like this in our day as well. The Israelites are looking backwards, and we in our society spend a lot of our time looking backwards. Nostalgia is around us all the time. So just a couple of examples. The two biggest grossing films of this year in are Barbie and the Super Mario Brothers film. Put your hand up if you've seen been to see the Super Mario Brothers film. Some of the youth have, some of the adults have. The Barbie film. So <laughs> no need to be embarrassed, it's fine. Um, <laughs> but film studios know film studios know that tapping into this nostalgia factor for parents as well as making something for the children means big money. Lots of those films are sold on the fact that parents think, oh, I used to like, like Super Mario, I'll take my children to go and watch this. Oh, I used to play for Barbie, I'll take my children to watch this. Another example, Glastonbury this year, uh, was headlined by Elton John, who was playing mostly songs from the 1970s. Uh, Guns N' Roses, who were playing mostly songs, that I really hate, uh, from the 1980s. <laughs> um, and The Arctic Monkeys, who still are playing songs mostly from 10, nearly 20 years ago. There's comfort in our memories of... There's, we get comfort from things in our memories of things from the past. Um, and people like to cling to those memories. Um, that was particularly true during the pandemic. Um, lots and lots of people spent time during the lockdowns looking... Uh, watching, re- re-watching old films and TV shows that they hadn't watched for years, things that they were their favourites that they went back to and watched again and again. Or listening, re-reading old books, books that they'd read before but were just their favourite books. Or watching old TV shows or um, listening to songs, listening to albums that were their favourite albums they hadn't listened to for a long time. Sports fans started re-watching old matches. There were no new matches to watch, they started re-watching old matches. Um, I, personally, one of my highlights of lockdown, one of the best things to happen in lockdown, was they started replaying on the radio um, old cricket matches. And I had the best... (laughs) 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 The best afternoon... Uh, working from home, re-listening to uh, Test Match Special from years gone by, it was—it was one of those moments that, if you know, you know there'll be some people in this in this room nodding and thinking, "Yes, that sounds amazing." And some people, like Liz, thinking, oh, "You are a very strange man," and that's fair enough. <coughs> but nostalgia can be a bit of a comfort blanket for blanket for us. It's really, really amazing to have happy memories of things um, and to revisit them. And our memory is an amazing and it's a precious gift from God. But we also need to be wary of it um, because it can be dangerous and it can be dangerous for our walk with God. We can turn things that we look back on fondly and we can build them into being more impressive than they actually were. And as a result, the things that are happening in the present, we look at them with a sense of disappointment um, and that stops us from making the most of them. Nostalgia is built on a half-truth. It's an exaggerated and it's a rose-tinted version of what things were like in the past. Usually the things that we remember were good, um, but often they weren't quite as good as we convince ourselves that they were. Certainly this is the case for the Israelites in the Old Temple. A quick glance through the Old Testament shows you that when they had the the Old Temple around, it may have looked magnificent, But the Israelites hadn't exactly enjoyed years and years of prosperity, non-stop security and closeness to God. So though we should enjoy our memories of the past, we should be wise to the danger of building them to being far greater than they were before. This nostalgia can be fatal to our relationship with God. We can't serve God in the past, only in the present. So if we're constantly looking back and fearing the best is behind us, then we're likely to miss out on what God wants to do now. And we can feel nostalgic in lots of different ways. We might feel nostalgic about particular periods in our life, um, maybe our church life or our home life or our friendships or even our work with God. But alongside that feeling of nostalgia can be the feeling that we saw the Israelites experience. One of discouragement about the present and therefore a reluctance to throw yourself into the now, into what's happening now. So maybe as you're looking at the life groups and which life group to be in, maybe you've got a memory, of a really, a really fond memory of a life group that you were in in the past that was really great. But maybe you've got also a feeling that Actually, somewhere in the back of your mind, any future groups that I'm going to be part of won't be as good as that one that I was in before. It won't be as good. So you just hold yourself back from fully committing to your new group because it's probably not going to be as good as that one I went to before. Maybe you hold back in the effort that you make to be there every week or even the effort you make to signing up to that group. Or maybe you just hold yourself back in how much you get to know and invest in the people who are in your group. Um, how vulnerable you are with people. Maybe, Maybe you've got a really fond memory of a particular time in your church life where you had loads of really good friends around. There were loads of people who you really liked, who were really good for you. But now, as people move on and life changes, you find yourself in a different stage. But maybe the feeling of nostalgia about those friendships, about that period in your life, maybe that makes you just hold back a little bit from really investing in the people and really getting to know people who are among you now. Maybe there's a thought in the back of your mind going, well, that friendship won't be quite as good as the friendship that I had then. Maybe maybe just in your personal life, there was a time in your life when you felt really, really, really close to God. You had a brilliant routine. You had amazing quiet times. You felt like God was speaking to you throughout the day. Um, and, but maybe rather than inspiring you to try and get back to that place rather than trying to recreate that feeling and get back into that routine maybe that feeling of nostalgia, hold, nostalgia holds you back why should you bother when it will probably never be as good as it was back then having positive happy memories is obviously a really really lovely thing But we need to be watching out just in case that instead of inspiring us into action in the present, that we actually cause ourselves to hold ourselves back. Now, as you will have picked up from my preaches, I quite like sport. Um, And unfortunately, I've reached the age when Um, When you hear someone described as a veteran or an experienced player or an old stager, which is the most insulting, the commentators are usually describing somebody who's younger than me. Um, (coughs) England have got a bowler called Jimmy Anderson who I love very much and mostly because he is still a little bit older than me. Um, (coughs) But I have to accept, accept that as a sportsman... I'm getting to the stage where my glory days are over. Um, My past is behind me. I was always very, very, very slow, but I'm only going to get slower. Um, But... I I know. Um, But I've never played sport because of the outwardly amazing things that I want to achieve. I've always played sport because I love doing it. And I will... Hopefully, I want to always carry on playing sport because it's something that I really enjoy doing. I'm too old to play football, I want to play walking football. When I'm too old for walking football, I'm going to take up Um, (coughs) bowls. Maybe before that. Um, But the point is... Our spiritual lives, our lives with God, are not like sporting lives. We don't reach a peak. Our bodies don't slow us down. Sometimes we might hold ourselves back because we think we've reached our peak, um, but that isn't the point. And we don't obey God because we're doing something that's outwardly impressive. We obey God because we obey God. And so if we're holding ourselves back from doing something for God because we think it's not going to be very impressive then maybe we've missed the point maybe we've missed the point of why we obey god actually we don't do it because we're going to do something outwardly impressive we don't not do something because we think it's not going to be very impressive we do it because god tells us to and because it's obeying god um so maybe if you're in that phase i've really felt like this morning there's maybe some people who are in that feeling actually yes i am holding myself back um Maybe you've got that subtle thing in your head that the glory days are behind you. Um, I really feel like God would say, God would encourage you to throw yourself now into what he's got for you now. Um, Don't hold back just because it might not be as good as it was in the past. Really throw yourself into what he has for you now. Because you never know, he might do something amazing, just like I might one day discover that actually I'm a really gifted bowls player. Um, So... But God doesn't just say to them, stop looking back. He wants the Israelites to look forward and look in the the future and look in the now um, with genuine hope and genuine excitement for the future. So the rest of these verses show us why this can be the case. Why this temple, though it might look, look as prestigious on the outside, is something to get excited about and something to put their hope in. So... After helping the Israelites to put their past in the right perspective, this passage moves into encouraging them in the present and then moves later on into encouraging them about their future. In verse 4, he says to Zerubbabel and to Joshua and to all the people to be strong as they move forward. And why should they do this? Why should should they be strong? It's not be strong because things aren't that bad. Um, At least you've got a temple. It's not be strong because worse things are happening to other people so you can't complain too much or be strong because it'll get the job done. They're the kind of things that people might say to us as a sort of encouragement, the kind of things that actually when you boil down to them aren't that encouraging. Um, instead, what God says is be strong for I am with you. And then later on in the verses, my spirit remains among you. The Israelites who were looking back in disappointment at what they were building at what they were building looked like, were focusing on the wrong thing. What was important wasn't the outward appearance of the temple. Um, it What was important was whether God showed up. God wants to assure the people that outward appearances are not the important thing. The, what was important was his presence. Now, This idea that our God is not drawn to outwardly impressive things shouldn't have been anything that was new to the Israelites. They would have known that when the prophet Samuel had been sent by God to choose a new king, that God had specifically told him to choose the scrawny youngest brother, David. They'd have known that when the prophet Isaiah talked about a saviour coming, he had described a saviour who had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should should desire him. This idea that God looks at things differently, that um, what he looks at is inside, that what um, the world considers weak, God considers precious, shouldn't have been new to the Israelites. But it would have been considered completely radical and totally insane to the rest of the world. Most ancient societies and cultures, and actually quite a lot of more recent ones, um, would have considered uh, that idea to be completely crazy. They operated, most other cultures and societies operated in the way that they saw the world operating. Only the strongest survive. Some people were born powerful and strong, and some were born weak. And it was absolutely fair enough for the strong to make the most of their strength and take advantage of the weak. That was how the rest of the world operated. The Israelites were already considered pretty weird because they just worshipped one God. But this concept, the idea that God would value the seemingly weak and the worthless, would have been completely radical to the ancient world. But our God, the God of the Bible, has a different view on the world. Our God is the God who says the last should be first who says that in your weakness, I am strong. Our God is the God of the vulnerable, of the outcast, of the weak, of the downtrodden, of the underdog. And so God says to the Israelites, don't worry that your temple doesn't look as impressive. What counts is whether I am there and I will be with you. Hmm. Maybe this morning you feel about yourself the way the Israelites were feeling about the temple. You just don't feel very outwardly impressive. That feeling might be a feeling of complete inadequacy um, or it might just be a feeling of disappointment in yourself or just a lack of confidence or self-esteem. But our God isn't the God of the self-confident or the arrogant. I think he would say to us what he, said to the, what he says to the Israelites here. Now what things look like on the outside doesn't matter. What's important is what's on the inside And the God who says in 2 Corinthians 12 verse 9, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness, would say to you, as he says to the Israelites, Be strong and work, for I am with you. God was happy for the temple to look nondescript, because it helped turn eyes towards his Messiah. And likewise likewise with us, the more we realise our outward weakness, the more we feel not very outwardly impressive, the more likely we are to lean on the one who is with us. Now, this promise of God being with us is an amazing one. Uh, It's a promise that comes up through the Bible. So the promise of be strong because I am with you um, is what God says to Joshua when he calls him to succeed Moses in leading the Israelites. Um, It's what Jesus reminds of his disciples before he returns to heaven in Matthew 28. Be strong for I am with you. Now, I think it's incredible that God is not a distant God, but a close one. And but when we talk about some, being with someone, we kind of talk about it in two ways in our language. Firstly, we talk about it as being someone with someone in a physical sense. So when I describe about being with someone, I might say someone's with me in this room or someone's standing close to me. But... We also use it as a way of showing agreement, as a way of showing that you're for somebody. So you say, I'm with you on that. You say, yeah, I understand that, or I agree with you on that. Um, And I think when God says to the Israelites, be strong, for I am with you, he is describing a closeness that describes both aspects of that phrase. He is describing a closeness. He is physically close. He lives in us. Um, But he's also far more than that. He's on our side. He wants the best for us. He knows how we're feeling. He knows what we're going through um, because he sent his son to experience and go through the same things that we've been through um, and far more. He knows what we need far better than we do, and he's cheering us on. Sometimes when I think of God being close, I kind of think of him as a bit like a spiritual golf caddy. So a golfer's caddy um, follows the golfer around. He carries his heavy load for them. He hands them the right clubs at the right time. Um, maybe gives them a bit of advice. Tells them what shot they need to play. Tells them how far away they are. Um, and God can be like this. God is like that. this. He's close to us. He gives us what we need. He prompts us and he advises us. Which is amazing stuff. But he is also with us emotionally. He's also... He cares for us, he has compassion for us, he um, has empathy for us, and he knows what we need. So, and he knows that, and knowing that, knowing that God is with us closely, but knowing God is for us as well, means that we can, being able to be strong and work, we know has got nothing to do with what things look like on the outside. And we can know that we can go in confidently, knowing that God is with us on the inside. So this passage has started by looking backwards and then moved into encouraging Israelites to be strong in the present. And it finishes by calling them to look forward. So I just want to read the last three verses again just so we've got them fresh in our minds. So this is the looking forward now. The so, verses six to nine again. It says, this is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations and what is desired, desired by all nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. Now, if the writer of the NIV was in a year three class, their teacher would definitely be telling them to use the word Lord Almighty less and say he, but. um, Anyway, so the Israelites can keep going. They've got a hope because of what is coming, um, and what is coming is going to blow everything else out of the water. God is going to shake things up, um, and because of what's going to happen, they can have hope and strength to keep going, and this temple, the temple that they're building, is going to have a central role in all of that. And I think we can see this shaking up that it talks about happening in two key events. The first happens just over 500 years after Haggai's time. We can read of it starting to happen um, with some parents who lose their 12-year-old son in this temple, um, or they find him in this temple after they visited Jerusalem um, for another pa- festival, actually, this time of Passover. Um, and they find their son, they lose their son, they find him, In the temple, or as he calls it, his father's house. And around the age of 30, we can read how this same boy has grown up to be a man and he returns to the temple. But this time he turns the tables over um, of those who are using it to make money rather than worship. Um, And he says to the Jewish priests, um, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And then a few years later, that same boy is arrested, tortured, and crucified. And in Matthew twenty-seven fifty-one, as Jesus dies, um, we see the temple take center stage again. And it says, at that moment, so at, as the moment, as Jesus dies, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. At that moment, we see the earth literally shake showing the impact of what's just happened. But we can also see the whole earth shake and the way we relate to God turned upside down. As the earth shakes, barriers are torn down. As the temple curtain is torn in two, so is the barrier between us and God. The temple had acted as the house of God. He lived there. Only a special few could enter anywhere near his presence. But that moment where the temple shakes, the temple curtain is ripped in two, it removes that separation. Jesus dying means that people no longer have to travel to Jerusalem to visit the temple to be close to God. The cross means that God, by his spirit, lives in us, a free gift. Verse 7 of our passage in Haggai describes how what is desired by all nations will come. The cross makes the gift of intimacy with god by of his presence living in us a free gift that is open to all people of all nations gone is the distinction of god's people of a special nation set apart this is an invitation for all no matter what your background or your past and as the earth shakes it also removes the barrier that stops stops anyone from having this relationship with god sin The whole basis of our relationship with God is transformed. The need for performance, for reaching a certain standard, is gone. Ephesians 2 tells us, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. The cross means that any guilt or any shame is gone. The Israelites in our passage worried that their temple wasn't good enough. The cross means that we are set free from ever needing to feel not good enough or not acceptable anymore. Our slate has been wiped clean once and for all. We're saved by grace, not by works. And so the cross shakes away any need for us to feel any guilt and any shame. Never ever need to feel not good enough, not acceptable anymore. We never ever have to worry about not looking outwardly impressive anymore. And so through the cross, we can see how God can say the glory of the new temple will be greater than the former temple. The cross has opened up a closer relationship with God, one where his presence lives in us. It opened up a relationship with God to anyone who trusts in him. And in removing sin, it means that we can have that close relationship. When it talks in verse 9 about how in this place I will grant peace, We can see that happening with our relationship with God. Before the cross, the closest people could get to God was the temple. There was a tension in that relationship. A perfect God can't be at peace with a disobedient people who continually fall short. But the cross has removed that barrier. The need to go to a priest or visit a physical temple is gone. Um. We read in the Bible, 1 Corinthians tells us that our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. If we accept him, he's no longer distant, but he's close. And so in this place, I will grant peace. He's not talking about a physical place anymore. He's talking about us. We can have that peace. But the earth shaking on Good Friday, though, is not the final time that earth will shake. That's one of the times the earth will shake. Um, but it's going to happen again. And as well as pointing to Jesus coming the first time around... This passage also uh, points to his return again that we can look forward to. And and the earth will shake again. And Hebrews chapter 12 quotes our passage from today um, when it says this. So Hebrews chapter 12, verse 26 um, through to 29 says, at that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more, indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. And so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. I think this is both a really exciting but also really, really terrifying vision of what's to come. Verse 27 tells of the removing of things that can be shaken. But the little aside, I love the little aside that comes after that. Um, Because I just think it paints a staggering, pretty hilarious picture of how big God is. So it talks about things that can be shaken. But it doesn't say things that can be shaken like jelly or the leaves of a tree on a windy day. It says things that can be shaken, that is, Created things. Anything that can be, that's been created, God considers a shakable thing. Something like a blue whale that's 199 tonnes. Shakeable to God. Or Mount Everest, 8,849 metres tall. Shakeable things to God. Or the tectonic plates. Again, shakable created things. Our God is a mind-blowingly big God. And when Jesus comes, he will remove the shakable things. Um, not a maraca, things like Mount Everest. This, if we've understood it properly, should be absolutely terrifying. But the amazing thing, that the vision of a time when we can finally know peace. So there's this terrifying thing comes, but we're also promised that we can have peace. Um, because, as the verse in Hebrews tells us, we are, receiving, we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. There's all these things that can be shaken, but we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So that is ultimately why Haggai can confidently say that the glory of the present house will be greater than the former house. Why the Israelites can look forward with hope and excitement rather than look back and be filled with despair. And that is why when we read this, We can share in that excitement. And what excitement is, we're living in an age where the earth has been shaken once, where we can access that close and intimate relationship with God that isn't dependent on how outwardly impressive we are or how outwardly impressive we we feel or how strong we feel. We're living in an age where we can look forward to him coming again because we know that we can receive, we can know with sureness and certainty, that's the word I was looking for, um, that we can enjoy the privilege of inheriting a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Mm. So I'd like us to respond to this passage. Um, And I think really the best way to respond Um, is to just follow the instructions of that verse from Hebrews in 28 and 29. So, um, band, if you could quietly, subtly make your way back up. Um, I think it would be good to spend some time just worshipping our God. Worshipping the God who is the God of the vulnerable and the unlikely. If you've come this morning feeling vulnerable and unlikely, our God is your God. Um, the God who sent his son to die for us so that we can inherit a kingdom, but a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So I want us to, I want to just to reread um, those last couple of verses from the passage in Hebrews. Um, and then we'll stand together and um, we'll sing. In fact, why don't you stand up now and I'll reread those verses. Um, we'll take communion in a few minutes as well and Rachel will lead us back through that. But why don't you stand up? Um, and I'll read those last two verses, and then let's, let's do what it says, basically. It says, "Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful, and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire.